All right, John chapter 1. This is part 15 in our verse-by-verse study of the book of the Gospel of John. The title of the message today is called Christ, Full of Grace and Truth. Start reading in verse 14 and read through verse 17. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him, speaking of John the Baptist. Remember, this is John the Apostle writing this, but he's talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is he whom I spoke. He who comes after me has been before me, for he was preceding me. And out of his fullness, we all have received grace and for grace. For the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at the second part of verse 14, which was, We beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father. And in the context of John chapter 1, We notice the contrast of our former selves when we were in darkness. When that light light shined to us when we were in darkness, we didn't comprehend the light because of our depravity. We contrasted that with God graciously shining that light into our minds so that he could reveal his glory to us. And that is a work of God that is a permanent change for us. It changed us as people. I know one of the discussions on social networking this past week is, does a person change after he's saved? I just said he did, because the scripture throughout says that he does. We'll talk maybe a little bit more about that. Let's think about it. We talked about last week that contrast of being in that other state and now being in this state, and we consciously are aware of that movement from one state to the other. You think that's going to be a change? Yes, it is. It's a change of mind. Will that affect us as persons? Yes, it does. Now, I'm not just going to stop there and say, well, you know what? You can make up what you want after that, what I mean by what that change will be. Well, we don't have to go into all the details, but that doesn't mean that, you know, if before I was converted, my hair was as long as uh, Rob and Al's, and after I was converted, I just cut it a little bit shorter. That doesn't necessarily mean that kind of change. There's some music that I really, really like that I'm not going to stop listening to. And it's not gospel music either. So depending on, there's probably some other music that I might look at and think, well, that's probably not good to listen to. We don't need a laundry list of things to do and not do. The scripture is clear on what we're to do and not do. You know, I, I think it's what's weird about religion is they like to, pick current things that are not even listed in the scripture and they take advantage of people and say with a contemporary issue and enforce that on people and make it a rule and a standard that is really a commandment of men scripture talks about in titus the commandments of men that turn from the truth that are not necessarily biblical that doesn't mean that some current things that are going on that are not mentioned in the bible that we shouldn't do i'm not saying that either god gave us the mind of christ to figure these things out But the idea, of course, is we are not in this journey to keep track of uh, the points we score by the things we do or don't do to be accepted by God. That's against the gospel. 
Last week, the topic was the glory of God. And last week we saw the, first of all, the natural glory he has as God, as creator. We saw he's God in his attributes. We saw he, he's God in his creatorship. We've already seen that in the first part of chapter one. We saw he's God in his providence. So we already know that the word is God. He's eternal. And he has glory because of that. That's kind of like a no-brainer, really. So we went to the next, uh, what I believe the more important part, which does include, it includes the first part. We saw this special glory, this different glory. It's his redemptive glory. That's his chief glory. That's God's chief glory, is his redemptive glory. As the God-man mediator, by what he came and did, and he earned, God the Father crowned him with that glory and exalted him to the highest place and point. We looked in Ephesians 1, and we looked at Philippians 2, at these different texts that shows his exaltation that he earned from humbling himself, coming down, being made flesh, dwelling among sinners, in his humiliation on the cross, being punished for sin, not of his, not of even of his own, it's for the sin of others, his people. And he earned that redemptive glory as the God-man. And we're shown that glory when we're converted. God shows us that. So the next section we're going to go to is this uh, that goes on to describe the word who Christ is as one who is Full of grace and truth. So we kind of want to look at that today. I have no idea how far we're going to get. The word full here, it means cover over or complete. And it comes from two root words that mean to supply, to fulfill, to accomplish. So this Christ, as he is the word, he's full of grace and he is full of truth. Right away, we see there's nothing lacking there. Completely plumbful, as hillbillies might say. Running over. We look at other contrasting words. We sang a song that talks about things that come from him. Mercies, plural. And blessings and ten thousands besides. And if the blessings that come from him are vast, that must mean he's vast first to be able to give these things, right? And he's earned those things by what he has done, this glorious work of redemption that he accomplished. So there are other scriptural references and phrases that describe him using words like treasure. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In him all the treasures of wisdom are. And it talks about riches, treasures, blessings, these things. He's a fountain. You could go on, and there's probably some names up here that are that describe him. Don't be looking when I'm preaching. Just listen. <laughs> but I'm telling you, you can look at one. It says Christ is all. It's up here somewhere behind me. So that's the idea. He is all. He's full of grace and truth. And again, think of the extreme contrasts of having Christ with all that he is compared to what we were before. Empty. Vain, wicked, abominable, in that state that we're in before. Is that a change? Yeah. We've got him, and because we've got him, he told us something that I'm not going to ignore, because 
He says that we have all these riches. We are we have an inheritance and we are joint heirs with Christ who owns it all. And I'm not necessarily worried about things as far as physical, the new earth that's to come and all that. People talk about streets of gold. I don't, I don't care about that. I don't even think that's literal anyway. I think it's spiritual language just to say it's going to be better than what we got now. In the thing that Andy read there, it talks about how that we are going through this turmoil. We groan and we await the redemption of the body. And we talk about the war. We talked, I think it was a little bit last week about the war, at least I've been talking about this week. The war, John Pedersen preached about, that's that message I posted, about the war that Paul was talking about. And we know that Christ has already won the victory there. And we, we did a message in Isaiah, it's on the sermon audio. I can't remember the name of it, but it talks about the war is done. Christ won it on the cross. And all we do is keep our eyes on that. And now we're involved in a spiritual warfare that we can't lose anyway. We fail, but Christ won the battle. And that's who we look to. And we go through all these different things to learn and to grow and all that. But we know that we've passed from death unto life. We've came out of that other category where we were uh, altogether vanity and we were, we were wicked. We were an abomination. Now God has, has made us new creatures in him. And we look by faith, we look to who we are in him now. We don't, doesn't matter who we are in the flesh. We've changed identities. It's because of his accomplishment. It's because he's full of grace and truth. That's why. Before, it was no grace and no truth. You might say, well, it's a little bit of grace, a little bit of truth. No, none, zero. It's either you got 100% grace or you got 100% truth. It's not 99% grace, a little bit of works, or 99% lie and a little bit of truth. It's not that. Go to Romans 11. Let me show you something about that. I know people have been here a long time know this, but... It'd be good for everybody to see this again, but there's some newer people here. We might not have even read this uh, in a while. I don't know. Andy, you've been coming here uh, you know, some months, and I don't even know if I've read this since you've been here, but you might have read it yourself. But it's important to the point here. Romans 11 and verse 5. Now, Paul is talking about his uh, his heritage, you know, as far as who he is physically, and he He's talking to people, has God forgotten people like me of this bloodline? I'm a Hebrew. And he says, no, he hasn't. I'm, I'm part of the remnant that God has chosen out of the Jews. So he hasn't forgotten his people altogether. Which reminds me, you know, you back, I can't remember when it was, back in the 70s or 80s, uh, bumper stickers. Jill, you might be able to, and, and Charlene, you might be able to say when this was. Save the whale. 70s or 80s, one or the other, right? You remember the phrase? Bumper stickers. I remember seeing them all the time. Well, that doesn't mean every single whale, without exception, will be saved. That means this species, we need to pay attention to species. They're getting killed off, so we need to save the species before they become extinct, right? This is a sense in sometimes where why Paul, I think, reacted. Has God cast away his people? Well, remember what he said in chapter 9 before this. They are not all Israel that are of Israel, right? They're labeled a certain thing, but a remnant out of them is saved, just like some whales would be saved in that campaign that went on back in the 70s and 80s. For God's love the world. There, there's a remnant of people 
that are saved out of the world, and you could say the world was not ultimately perished because here's some that are saved. Just like Noah, there was eight. The humans were not extinct. So God is the savior of the world in that he saved Noah. And, and on and on, there's all kinds of examples in the scriptures that talks like that. We have to look at words in their context when these stories are being told here. Now, here Paul in verse 5 talks about this word remnant, which means you might be familiar with the idea of carpet. That's the first time I ever thought about this idea, not being very educated. I remember seeing commercials about remnants, looking at carpet, it says remnant sale, and this, that, and the other. I thought of carpets. But it made sense. It's a small piece out of the big giant manufactured roll. Or out of, like for example, metal. I, I mess with metal. I know there's batch numbers and heat numbers. Well, they might produce thousands and thousands of things in one day and they get stamped with a heat number. And a portion of it gets shipped to our company. And if something goes wrong, the heat number and the purchase order is connected to the heat number. If something goes wrong, the warranty is connected to that heat number. It's a batch out of the batches that they do all the time. So it isolates it to a remnant of metal versus all the metal that they've ever produced. So here, there's probably other examples too, but Paul here, he's, he goes, even so, at this present time, right now when he's writing this, there is a remnant referring to these people. Is God cast away his people? No, he's saying. There's a remnant according to what? This doctrine everybody hates, doesn't want to talk about. Paid preachers, to keep their congregations, cannot talk about this doctrine. At least if they do, they can't explain it the way the Bible does. They'll make stuff up to twist it and pervert it and make it something else. But it's the election of grace. The election of grace made this small, tiny bit out of the large bit. It made the difference. God choosing a people from among other people. He created a remnant that he chose. Now, Here's why I brought us here. I want us to remind us of this idea. And, and really, we can't compromise on this. We need to get this. This is a foundational idea that you need to get in your brain and don't budge from it. So he talks about grace because that's the context, election of grace. We know salvation is all of grace, everything about salvation. So I think you can broaden grace beyond election. I think it's safe to do. Go out on a limb and do that. We'll talk about salvation overall when he's talking about grace here. He says, but if by grace, then it is no more of works. I'll just take that statement as an absolute statement in and of itself by itself. If salvation or anything to do with salvation is by grace, then none of that is by works. This is what's called monergism as opposed to synergism, which is humanism it's false religion so he says he and he goes further to give some commentary on why or what the implications of holding to a bad view of that first part of that sentence he says otherwise grace is no more grace what he's saying here we can do the math on this if you add works to grace you voided out grace it doesn't the term, throw it out, doesn't mean anything. You've canceled, you've run the definition. He goes on the flip side, which is even more beneficial because of the redundancy of it. 
But if it's by works, if salvation's by works, then it's no more of grace. So that's an absolute statement. You say that you're saved by works, then you're not allowed using grace at all, ever. It's full-blown, 100% works. Don't add grace. It means you don't need mercy. You don't need grace. It means you're self-righteous. You're admitting you're self-righteous. It means you're a boaster. You're a bragger. It means you're condemned, too. <laughs> it's automatically. You're embracing the curse and saying, God's a liar. I can handle this. You're denying grace. And you're going to be in trouble. And it goes on to add the same commentary. Otherwise, work is no more work. So he's saying, when you add grace to works, you've voided out works. And when you read through there, the, I remember the first time I read this real quick through there, I thought, what in the world is that saying? It kind of was like a conglomeration. It's not hard. Just slow down, break it in different parts, read it, soak it in. And don't leave this principle. This is life and death right here. So Christ is full of grace and truth. You look at verses like this, this is grace and truth, right? It's the truth of grace. It's the truth of Christ. It's the grace of Christ. You can zigzag it any way you want and connect it. I mean, it's all congruent. So before, we loved our own righteousness, right? And that was really the main thing. That was the foundation of our religion in the past. We loved our own righteousness. We always needed to add something to make our idol, fashion our idol, to finish the job of salvation. We're always having to add something. We were guilt-driven in our religion. We worshipped our own will. It says in Colossians, it calls people that have this taste not, touch not, handle not religion, which is based on the commandments of men. They call these people will worshippers. And when you talk to these people, they just that's that's the last grand idol that they're holding. You can't rip it out of their arms. God has to do it. They worship their will. We didn't believe in grace alone, like this verse ahead of that we just read teaches. Grace, and I put the word on purpose. I've actually spelled it in all capital letters. You can't see it in my notes, but it is capital A-L-O-N-E. That makes a difference. It goes with that verse. Grace and not adding works to it. <laughs> what came out of it? What was the fruit of us believing that? We were not gracious to people either. <laughs> we were judging others by the law. So we were not gracious. Scripture talks about people, I believe it's in Luke, that, that had confidence in themselves. In that text it says that it was an abomination the way these people held their doctrine. It says that uh, they thought they were righteous in themselves. And it said, the next part of the line said, and hating others. Because that's the way it is. You say, I'm better than you. I'm holier than you. I'm more righteous than you. And you point the finger at everybody else. And one of the points in that message that uh, John Pedersen, he emphasized that, that in the past religion, we were more concerned about other what other people were doing than what we should be doing. And that's what religion does. But when it pleased God to run us through all these things, all this religious garbage, and he did it for a purpose, it pleased him to do it. He knew what he was doing to teach us 
just part of the law is all it is. Part of religion saying, I, I can't keep up. I can't do this anymore. This burden is too much. I give up. I'm tired of it. I can't establish a righteousness of my own. When it pleased God to run us through that, to bring us to that place, showing us that we cannot rid ourselves of the burden of sin and guilt and shame that way, that's when he showed us who Christ is and what he accomplished. And that's when we see his glory. And again, I ask, does that change a person? Yeah, it changes a person, all right. Does it affect the way a person thinks? It does. I mean, who cares about the feeling-driven world? That's a roller coaster ride. The feeling-driven world is a roller coaster ride, both physically and emotionally. If you are not a believer, but believers can get themselves in this circumstance where they don't look to Christ, but physically and emotionally, if you're attacked, something's wrong with you both physically and or emotionally, you're on a roller coaster. If you're not taking in what Andy read about in Romans 8, that all things work together, knowing that there's glorified body coming later and that we're going to, this body of death is going to be dropped off. If we don't know that, we're going to be hopeless, helpless and hopeless. So we need to care about what we think, not what we feel. I feel a lot of stuff good and bad, and it changes, right? The Word of God doesn't change. The gospel doesn't change. Christ doesn't change. His promises don't change. So we've been given a brand new heart, a brand new identity. Do you think that would possibly change our priorities in life? Would our priorities change? We've moved from one category to another. Our thinking has totally changed. Do you think that our priorities would change? That they'd be adjusted? Even a little. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so our altogether... We have a different worldview. I always use the phrase, our world is turned upside down. Right? Besides the scripture collectively telling us all this, how did I arrive at this conclusion? Well, um, first of all, I think if you take the, the Bible as a whole, as a believer, you can take the Bible as a whole and start... As Tim James said the other day, something about reduction, reductionary. Start casting all the things off and look at the focus of everything. God's main concern is his own glory. I'll debate that till the day I die. His chief concern is his own glory. That's why he demands people to worship him. There's commands that says, worship me and don't have idols and don't mess with my name because... I'm more important than everybody. I deserve worship. Some people look at a God like that and say, I'm not serving a God like that. He's an egomaniac. Go for it. <laughs> He'll be in trouble. This is the God we worship. He says, I'm God and there's none else. There's none like me. Declare the end from the beginning, things that haven't happened yet. I'm going to do all my purpose and you're not going to stop me. Have your little goofy opinions and ideas. And that's what uh, 
what's her face, uh, Oprah. She said when she heard that about God, it, that's when she started re rebelling. When God said, I'm jealous. That is one of his names, by the way. He's, he, that's his name, jealous. He deserves worship. He is God. There's none else. If you worship another God, you're done. So when she saw that he was jealous, she saw that that was something in him that was lacking. God's people say, no, that's, that's great. <laughs> he deserves, I'm worshiping this God. Because you can see the folly of false gods. See, there's always a contrast there that we have to, we have to shed some light on there for people. So his chief concern is his own glory. And the way that his most magnified view of his glory is seen is in the cross. Christ's glory and the Father's glory is seen the clearest in the cross. God's attributes, character attributes are seen the clearest in the cross. Start thinking about him. You know, his holiness, he's got to punish sin. His justice, sin will be paid for. His love, Christ died for those people. You go on and talk about all of his, uh, all of his character attributes are magnified and seen the most clear and amplified in the cross of Christ. There's like 25 messages on Sermon on the that goes over all that. I think it takes all the attributes and goes through that some years ago that I did. The most important, or I'm sorry, number three, in this life we are accountable to view him as such, as just what I just said. We're accountable to that. And when we see him as his chief concern is his own glory, and we see the glory in the cross, that fuels us. That fuels us to, to see him as he is. And that results in worship, praise, honor, telling other people about him. That's our fuel. We do that out of thankfulness. And love for others, thinking, I would like you to have what I have. I'm going to tell you about it. Us knowing that they have, they're drinking from the pool that has typhoid in it, right? It's a poison fountain. So we got to tell them about the purity of Christ that we've been given to drink of and to feast on. Fourthly, the most important aspect of the believer's life is worship of the only true God and love for those in his church. Now, we're told to even love our enemies. Of course, we're supposed to love people that we like. It's not, probably not that hard to do, to love people that you like. It's hard to love your enemies. But it talks about how that we're to love those that specially, it says, it uses the word specially, that are of the household of the faith. In other words, the church. Believers. If not the local, even believers if you can find any, that are scattered around that you may know. Fifthly, the gospel is the centerpiece or the tool for use to do that, what I just said, to love God and love other people. The gospel is the tool that's used to make that flourish, and we are to grow in that. So if God has uh, revealed Christ to you personally through the gospel, then your life is a different life. It's a fact. If it's not, you know, come tell me why. We'll talk about it. But if uh, you count your life to revolve around uh, emotionalism or circumstances, 
um, going your way, quote unquote. Things are going my way. I, I, there's a song, something about that, something about going my way. I heard the other day. If if your life is surrounded by that emotionalism and circumstances going your way, you're screwed. If you're not screwed now, you're gonna be screwed later. Even David, the prophet, he saw some people that were seemingly getting along way better than him, and he was going through some stuff. He says, "Why does wicked prosper?" He couldn't understand it. You know, on, sometimes on the way to work, I drive by a hundred church buildings, and you'll see some of them. They got some earth movers and stuff, and they're like, "They're building on again." You're kidding me? We've got this little room, and I kind of look at that. Wish I wish we had a nice building. You know, I'm not giving up hope. But David said, why do the wicked prosper? And then he said, it wasn't until I went to the house of the Lord and he prayed and meditated. And I guess God had shown him that they're not really prospering. In the end, they're done. So this little temporary thing, this little like little fizz out, it's going to fizz out. It's not lasting long. Life's a vapor for these people. They're going to be done. God doesn't have the affection that he has for his people. That's easy to forget. So the life of the believer is based on the solid foundation of Christ, which never changes, never changes ever. The gospel that tells about Christ too doesn't change. The gospel itself doesn't change either. It's not relative truth. It's not, well, you can have a gospel. You have that gospel. I have this one. It don't work. Relative truth is a lie anyway. Even in stuff that's not even to do with the Bible, relative truth is a lie. It's like Alice in Wonderland. Life. It's, it's insane. It's what's running our public policy today, basically. The gospel is the absolute unchanging truth, just like its author, right? And God's people are said now to live by faith and to walk in the Spirit. And uh, when we do that, of course, our life is, is guided by the Spirit, and it's different than the way it was. Before we had no hope, now we have hope. Before we worshiped idols, now we worship the true Christ. Before we rejected the gospel, didn't even know it, didn't understand it. We were in darkness, now we do. So that has changed how we think about our own life and how we deal with other people. Does that mean we're going to be sinless? Some people, when I make statements like that, wow, okay, you're saying exactly what I'm saying. Now I'm going to... Don't make me make a list of stupid things that I remember in false religion. It's not like that. A person cannot even be a believer and can quit. I've seen a guy quit heroin, which I imagine is pretty hard. I bet if I was on heroin, I couldn't quit it because <laughs> I know who I am. But this guy, he quit heroin. Can I look to that and say, that's evidence of his regeneration. He is religious. He doesn't believe the gospel. I know drunks that quit drinking that aren't believers. You can tame a snake, I'm telling you. You can clean up the outside. So we can't look at those things as evidences. <laughs> I remember a, a, a hyper-Calvinist, I've, I've mentioned this before, a hyper-Calvinist guy who believes you don't need to believe the gospel to be saved because you're predestined, he said, Oh, there's all kinds of evidences of regeneration. You can go to a restaurant and this waitress will, she'll just be real nice to you. I, that's evidence that she's regenerated. I said, dude, she's working on a tip. <laughs> might be, she might be a nice person. And that just may be part of her personality. And she's doing it not to try to get a tip, but 
I think people jack that up a little bit to get tips, right? But you can't look to those things as evidences. That's judging by the law. Can't do that. Don't do it in yourself either. It's deceitful. Because of the days you're not up to that certain standard that you set for yourself, because God didn't set it, you know what the standard is? It's absolute perfection. Right? That's the standard. Have you met that? No. That's why you look to Christ. Okay, so on your good day and your bad day, you're going to say, you know, I, I'm not looking at my record. I'm looking at Christ because his record's perfect. What you ought to be concerned with is the days you think are your good days. That's when your self-righteousness is going, blah, 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 blah. that can lead you astray. But when we like step into something that we shouldn't have in an immoral sense, whether it be like hating somebody or name any of the six commandments that are immoral and, and those that branch for them. When we do one of those, we shouldn't be like downtrodden and say, oh, man, I really wonder if I'm saved. That's what Satan wants. Again, good choice of text, Andy, that you read. It says that nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I could start naming David himself, the prophet. What did he do? He saw this lady taking a bath on a roof over there and said, I want that. I want that woman. Sent his people to go get that woman. He had sex with her, had a kid with her. And he thought, I want her to the extent that I want her husband. Yeah, she was married. I want him dead, and I've got the authority to go ahead and send him to the front lines so he will be killed up in the front lines. Get him up in the front lines, bring the support away from him. He's by himself. He's going to die. That's what happened. David was a believer. David was just as saved when he was doing that as he was on his best day of doing whatever good works that he has ever done as pinning the inspired word of God in the book of Psalms. He was just saved as much as being in the bed with Bathsheba as he was pinning the Psalms. If you can understand that, you understand the gospel. Now, some might think, hopefully nobody in this room, but in sermon audio might be thinking, well, you're saying we can just do anything we want. Did you hear that dumb accent? Yeah, that's what people think. Automatically they think, that's what you're giving people a license to sin. No, I'm not. Christ has done what he has done for me. I am. I, I see his glory. I don't want to go out and do all those things. I, I, I try to stay away from anything close to that. Does that mean that, like for example, he killed that guy. Does that mean that when somebody cuts me off in traffic and maybe even runs me off the road, I'm not going to think, man, I want to kill you. And I think it, which is the same as murder. Does that mean I will never do that? doesn't mean that. I've thought a lot of bad things about a lot of people in my life, you know, as far as like wanting bad things to happen. And some kind of recent, just to be honest. And I don't think, man, I don't know if I'm saved. You know what I do? Christ said, I came to save sinners. I say, that's me. I just committed one. That's me. That's called confession. It means I say the same word about my sin that he said about me. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. 
Does that mean a person has to physically commit adultery to commit adultery? Christ explained different. He said, if you look upon a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart already. Now, I don't know what women think all the time. I know what some women think sometimes. But I know the guys. If you are a guy and you have testosterone flowing through your body, if you say that you have never or don't Look at women with lust. You're either a homosexual or you're a liar. You see what we're getting at here? It's not It's not we're keeping track and tit-for-tat in categories and we we sin less and less and less. That means we get holier and holier and holier. That's, that's crap. That's what Paul called it in Philippians 3. Right? He said, I count that but dung so that I might win Christ not being found in my own righteousness, which is of the law. Kind of drifted pretty far from my notes there. So there's a change. There's a change in our attitude and the way we think about things. We measure things different. We realize that, again, standards perfection. We know we can't reach that, so we continue to look to Christ, who's perfect. For our acceptance, that's what we do. We look to Christ for acceptance. We don't, we don't look inside anymore. Before, in a state of unbelief, your faith and your trust could have been in other various invested in other various dead ends. Uh, the authority of a religious organization, for example, the Catholics. I mean, they're scared to death they're going to be excommunicated. So they toe the line, at least when people are watching. But there there are authority figures like, uh, you know, so they, they look to them, kind of like almost a, a mafia boss. You know what I mean? And they come around, and everybody straightens up. He's in charge. And that's the way it is with the, the Pope and the archbishops and the local Catholic church. Doesn't matter if they killed people or they're playing with little boys or whatever. That, that, forget about that. Scared to get kicked out of church. I drive by a big one, just a mile, mile or two down the road, and I look at them and I, my, you know, my belly hurts. Thinking, ah, oh, if those people could just come over here. Been praying it for years. Hopefully, we'll get some. They not only their unbelief and faith is trusted in and invested in other dead ends, but maybe not a religious organization, maybe a person. Maybe maybe a preacher. They have a man hero preacher. Brother so and so, you know, a reverend so and so, doctor so and so. How they get up and well, I worked with one lady and says uh, the way she knows uh, who to give her money to is who gives her the most chills when she hears him preach. I knew she wouldn't be coming to our church because we don't jump around and we don't even have a band, so that ain't gonna work. Because that helps that, you know. If you say stuff and move around and you got music behind you, you can choreograph with that box be running over back here. Which goes along with the next thing. Spirit being feeling and it being like a drug. Yeah. Uh, we worship today. I felt the spirit of the Lord today. And it has to do with all that emotionalism, all that pep rally stuff. Or the satanic lies of false religion that were really in our way and oppose the real truth. You know, those things that we I use that phrase. It was a phrase. I don't know how many people are used to using it. You say that that's a given. That means it's like it's it's obvious to people. But in false religion, the givens, things that are obvious to them, free will. I mean, everybody knows that. Everybody knows free will is a given, right? When you say something about you don't have a free will, you're like an alien. When you say God doesn't love all people, Christ didn't die for all people, God doesn't want to save all people, they look at you and say, that's the what in the world? Where did you get that? 
the whole Bible is full of it. That God loves his people. That Christ accomplished redemption for his people. God is the one that's sovereign and your will is subjected to God. And before you're converted, your will is actually subjected to Satan. We've read that a couple times the last few weeks. And God is not trying to do anything. He's not trying to save anybody. He does. He says, I'm God. I'm going to do all my purpose. And nobody shall stop me. It doesn't sound like free will to me. So those were some of our ideas in times past that our world was made of. So he's full of grace and truth. So what I want to ask us is a few questions here. I need to stop and just think and evaluate a few things in context of what we said. In reference to our phrase that we're using in our text, Christ being full of grace and truth. The first question is, is Christ alone sufficient? Is Christ alone sufficient for all of your salvation? Everything. All Can you trust this Christ to handle the responsibility as your representative and mediator to have all the conditions be laid on him for salvation? That's, that's the simplest way you can describe the gospel in reference to his work and who that he is is that his merit in establishing righteousness by himself, not you doing something with it, is it sufficient with you hands off? If you can't trust that, then you don't know the gospel. No additions, no subtractions. We just we read it in Romans 11.6. It's either all grace or all works. We know it's not works at all. Scripture says that it's, Paul says it's evident that we're not justified by the deeds of the law. He said it's evident. He used the, back 2,000 years ago, what meant common sense back then? He's saying it's common sense. You can't be justified by deeds of the law. He said that's a curse. Scripture says, it's Old Testament scripture says that's a curse because you've got to keep all the law all the time every time and not stop and if you've already offended the law so why are you starting you're already in trouble some people think well if I start right now and keep it you're a liar you don't know anything you don't hear what the law says you can't start and do it right even after you start you don't have it in you Adam and Eve before sin nature failed you think you with a sin nature going to succeed you are a will worshiper the next question, is his grace alone sufficient? Saying the same thing as the first one, really. And is his truth sufficient? I know we have our own ideas by nature. And that's what God fixes. He strips us of our stupid ideas. Changes our minds. I just saw yesterday, somebody on Facebook was saying, that they were wanting someone to gather some rules. They said they were so confused about this doctrine of progressive sanctification that really they needed a set of rules to live by and standards to live by. And they were wanting somebody to give them this set, whatever they were, so that they could start progressively becoming more holy and follow by following those rules. They were being genuine. Well, I tell you, this, I'm just going to give some comedy to it because you'll laugh. Uh, the first guy said, 
have you considered wearing a veil? <laughs> I'm not kidding you. This was a Baptist to show your submissiveness. You need to wear a veil. I just wrote that the rule of life for the believer is found in, and let's finish there by going there, Galatians, gone there many times before. I want to grab some context with it in closing. I think I only got like a third of my notes done today, so I guess it doesn't matter. Galatians 6, we'll conclude with this. So this is the rule of the life of the believer, and it's built on and invested in what makes them holy in the first place. Verse 12, Galatians 6, 12. Let me just stop a second. Let's put us in the mindset of what went on at the church, churches of Galatia. There were like four churches scattered out in that region. There had been what Paul called false brethren that had crept in, and they said, yeah, I believe in Christ. Of course you need to believe in Christ. But what we need to do is we have to do the holy days. We have to do certain dietary things. And the men need to do circumcision to be holy and accepted to God along with the crucifixion of Christ. So they're blending Judaism with Christianity. Paul, on verse 6 of chapter 1, he said that's another gospel. It's another gospel. And by the time he got to verse 9, he said, if you believe that other gospel, or if you're preaching it, you're going to be damned. You're going to be condemned. So he goes through all the arguments in Galatians, which are just spectacular, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he gets down here, and he's winding it down in chapter 6, verse 12. And he's talking about this circumcision thing. He says, as many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh... They constrain you or compel you to be circumcised. Talk about these false brethren and the people that have been convinced by the false brethren. It's like they're encouraged to pick, yeah, come on, man, get in the club. Be circumcised. You can take hold of the riches of Abraham, the tradition of just our Jewishness, you know. Get on the Jewish boat. And uh, they're compelling them to do this, to be accepted before God. It says, only that they may not suffer the persecution of the cross of Christ. What he's saying is, if you say, no, circumcision is added to the cross is damnable, so is the special holy days and the dietary laws. If you add them to the gospel, that's damnable. He, Paul's saying, if you say that, you're going to be persecuted. But if you go along with, yeah, go ahead and put the circumcision in the days and let's do this dietary thing, then it's going to be smooth. Right? That's what he's saying. So there's a way to stop persecution. You just compromise. Verse 13. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law. Neither they themselves who are... Those people that are pushing this idea, they don't keep the law. Why are you listening to these fools for? That's what he's saying. But they desire to have you circumcised so that they may glory in your flesh. Well, that's the wrong place to glory, right? Here is where to glory. But God forbid that I should glory except in one place. There's one place, one exception that I will glory. It is in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell you, it's not very popular because he says, By whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Me and the world, this is the change I'm talking about. When you're converted, you come to that conclusion that the only place I should glory is in the cross because God's chief concern is his glory. And the most magnified place you can see his glory is in the cross. 
When you come to that conclusion, you reject all other ideas and you hate other ideas and you call other ideas false gospels, then that means the world that holds to the false gospels is crucified to you and vice versa. For in Christ Jesus, doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not, he says. Circumcision doesn't have any strength or doesn't avail or uncircumcision. But the important part is that you are a new creature. You're a new creature in Christ. And then here's, here's what I want to see. Here's the rule that God's people walk by. As many as walk according to this rule, what he just described, the rule is that I don't glory in anything at all except the cross of Christ. That is my rule of life. Don't put a law on me. This is my law that governs my heart. And I'm led by the Spirit to obey out of gratitude. Don't pile rules on me. Because just piling rules on somebody is a curse. Because people can never keep all the rules. They've never been able to. Christ is the only one that's been able to keep all the rules. Now, it follows, it says, peace be on them. Those that follow this rule, the rule of the new creature, peace be on them. They're the only ones that get peace put on them. And mercy upon the Israel of God. And he uses the Israel of God. This is just another redundant language for the spiritual Israel, the church, that believe the gospel. Those that are of the seed of Abraham are those that believe the promise of the gospel. We're complete in him. And now we live by faith through the Spirit. Stop there. Questions, comments, and a song. Song for sure. You were talking about the uh, guy on Facebook that he needed the gold sugars to give him the guidelines you know, how he should live to become another player of the day. Uh, the guidelines, you know, it's the entire law of God, right? Already, you already have it there. Um, and just like, you know, you've been saying, you can't keep it. You know, he was, I think he was reaching out for, uh, some kind of validation. I don't know if it's validation. He was reaching out for a way to keep that. One of the rules that you live by so that you can live by all, all these other things. I think, I just thought, I think in the context of that post, he was he knew that the astringency of the old covenant couldn't be kept, and he was wanting to know like the secret. What is the secret now? We're in the new covenant. What's the secret of, you know, because because he didn't see this this idea that he'd been influenced by progressive sanctification. He didn't see anybody with remedy and say, "Look, here's one page, eight and a half by eleven. Just do this, and you'll be okay." He wanted a shortcut method. What can I do? Really? What can I do? To be safe, not just be safe, but to slowly progress. As long as I progress, it, it seems like you guys are saying I'm okay, because that's going on the way to holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. And I have to do this so that my righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, because if it doesn't, I'm in trouble. Help me out here, guys. Give me a list. i got to do a list, because I'm scared. I'm afraid. And I have no rest in Christ. Who already took care of the list? <laughs> right? Right? And I try to obey after that. After I am put in Christ and given a new mind, 
show me what to do. I'll try to do it. I, I can't guarantee I'm going to do it. I'm probably going to fail. Probably going to fail. You know, another guy, uh, I really like this guy. He was going to try to make it at the conference. But uh, he said he didn't think he's going to make it. But I'm going to try to visit him when I, me and Becky go on vacation. When we come back up through, I'm going to try to stop and visit with him. He said a lot of good stuff. I reposted something he said out of a big thread. I took a paragraph out and I said, We are able now to resist temptation. Now, when he said that, I knew he didn't mean, mean all the time. We're able, but we might not succeed all the time. And, you know, it, I don't think it's even wrong saying more often than not we fail. I don't think that's wrong with saying that. I think it's true. <laughs> if we sin every day, I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't think, you know, in our minds or in God's mind, first of all, he didn't track our sins. He doesn't. If God shall mark iniquity, who shall stand? My iniquities aren't marked. They're Christ. They're put on him. So he's not tracking it. But in our minds, I think we have this idea of books that are kept. They're kept for the non-elect, and they're going to pay. But for the elect, stuff's not tracked anymore, really. Doesn't mean God's dumb. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know what's going on. I'm not saying that. But in our, I think it's mostly focused on us, the way we think. As we think, there's another, there's another. And then you do something over here. Oh, that's pretty good. You know, it, it's that's not the thing. And, you know, sometimes... Uh, uh, this idea about sinning less. The one, per, the one guy said, we should be sinning less and getting holier. Sinning less, I mean, in what, in what circumstance? How? And what day? Like, sinning less every day? Because I've asked that before to some of these guys. No, they, they, over the year, you should be able to tell, like, over, where'd you get that from the scripture? Over the year. And, and I said, instead of saying less, the scripture says, don't sin, right? Even though we believe in sovereign grace and we preached all that we preached today, scripture says, don't sin. But if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. That's what he's there for. Christ Jesus the righteous. That's one of his offices. He's an advocate. He's our lawyer, our representative. That's just like, uh, and I never preach on money here. I never talk about it, but. You hear people fighting over, is tithing in the scripture, this, that, and that? You know what? Tithing is not, that's not a mandatory thing. You don't tithe. Scripture says that God loves a cheerful giver. Now, having said that, having said all the things about our life changed, I'm going to violate this myself, but I'm just giving you an example of the way we should think. And this is not my idea. I heard another good preacher say this. that, And he's not a money-grabbing preacher either, I promise. He said, after you have seen what Christ has done for you, you look at 10% and not even talking about money, talking about everything, time, energy, gifts. You look at 10% and you say, are you serious? 10%? I'm just, I'm paying God off 10% for everything. He's changed my world. 10% is weak, right? I'm not saying that to get that box filled. I'm saying that to think about your thankfulness and gratitude for what Christ has done for you. 10% is not going to, you're not going to make payments. I've got off the hook this week. I've paid 10%. Now, so-and-so's in the hospital. He's there in the hospital. I paid my 10%. I'm not going to worry about that. 
See what I mean? People think that way. Christ paid it all, therefore that re reflects on what we think about everything. Religious people like to isolate little slivers of things, and they'll take the smallest little thing and suppress you and make you feel so guilty. What do you got, bud? 18. 